How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and, at this point you should guess it, more Saw! We are back for another bop in a movie with Saw 4. We said we are going to do them all, and god damn it, I'm going to have to drink so much Malort to get through this. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today for this bop in a movie are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Do you think the um, the gadget that's uh, that's attached, attached to Art Blank makes him look a little bit like a Spider-Man villain? A little Very bit, yeah, yeah. I think we all can agree on that wholeheartedly. That's my only comment. Goodbye. Then Goodbye. I just leave and I don't do the rest of the commentary. <laughs> we hear your car starting up and you drive into the night. <laughs> he was uh, in his home. home. <laughs> <laughs> he was done. He did what he needed to do. Uh, and say hello to our other co-host, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Nothing says Saw 4 quite like our second trap in the movie was the first one in Saw history to break down on set. <laughs> Even the movie's like, yeah, we give up. Well, folks, we have ooh, about an hour and 35 minutes of Saw to get through. So we're going we're gonna to jump into this very quick. But before we do, as always, we have a cocktail for you if you want to drink along. Uh, in this case, I am feeling generous. So I'm actually going to give you the proper delicious version of this cocktail uh, and also my shitty Malort version that I will be drinking. <sighs> so let's get into it. Uh, tonight's drink is the Tree of Death. What you're going to need for it, uh, if you're making the good version, let's go over the ingredients there first. The good version that you'd actually want to drink, uh, you're going to need two ounces of a silver rum. I use Plantation 3 Star. Uh, you're going to need a half ounce of something like creme de cases, which is like a black Toronto liquor. Um, but really any sort of fruity liqueur would be perfect for this. You only need a half ounce. Um, a half ounce of simple syrup and one ounce of fresh lime juice uh, and a hurricane glass. You're going to put all this in a hurricane glass. So what you're going to do, combine all the ingredients besides the creme de cassis into a shaking tin with uh, some pebble ice. You're going to shake that for about 10 seconds so the thing starts feeling a little frosty. Uh, you're going to open pour that into the hurricane glass and then top with more pebble or crushed ice to fill the glass up. Then you're going to take a bar spoon, put it over the top of the drink. 
uh, and slowly pour the creme de cassis over the drink. And it's going to, if you do it right, seep through the drink and it's going to look like roots cutting all the way down the drink. Because this liquor is kind of a dark red and the rest is more of kind of a, a limish color. So you'll get these really cool kind of blood streaks going through your drink like tree roots. Uh, and then you can just top it with a sprig of mint if you feel fancy. Now, if you want to make the version I'm drinking that I'm very not excited about, you do all the same steps, only the creme de cassis is going to be replaced by a half ounce of Malort. Uh, and you don't need to spray this one over a spoon to get it to leak into the drink because it's such a weird color, it just blends in. Uh, so you can just dump that half ounce or more, if you're crazy, right into the drink. Uh, I am staring at mine right now. I put the mint on top. It's in a frosty hurricane glass. If I didn't know any better, I would assume this was going to be delicious. And the longer I talk, the more the Malort seeps into the drink and ruins it because my straw is stuck all the way in the bottom where hopefully it has not reached yet. So I'm hoping for one solid good sip uh, before my night's ruined. Anyways, bottoms up. Oh, the bottom actually is delicious. Very tasty. And let's move the straw up now towards the top of the drink. Oh, that's very bad. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I would like us to make a shirt that says the bottom is very delicious. Uh, because that's just true. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm stirring this around, so maybe it'll be less potent. I, I just drank basically straight Malort. It was all just it was hovering on the top. Ugh. I had a Halloween party, and uh, uh, I, I told you guys about the Malort popcorn. I, I brought it out, and I told people what it was, so it wasn't like a prank, but it was just like, here's the worst thing you'll ever taste. I had some, and it had been sitting out for about a month and a half, and somehow going stale had only made it worse. Like, the popcorn didn't taste like popcorn anymore. It just tasted like Malort strengthened. So I, I, I hate it. It was awful. One of the worst things I've ever eaten in my life. Uh, and one guy who said he loved popcorn, I'm like, well, you better try this. It's the worst popcorn ever made. And he reached in, he grabbed a couple pieces, he threw one in his mouth, and then immediately threw in a second one. And I tried to stop him, like, you gotta stop, bro. And he's like, no, this is fine. And he, he just he just ate this shit like it was nothing. And I couldn't believe, like, Alejandro, are you okay? Do you have taste buds? Are you all right? And he's like, hey, it's not my favorite popcorn, but it's just popcorn. And I just fucking lost it. I couldn't believe someone... Ugh. Respect. Yeah, it was fucking nuts. Uh, so hats off to that guy. Also, I think he stole one of my popcorn buckets. <laughs> that was his prize for mastering the Malort. I can't be mad if that's the case, yeah. Honestly, if you're do if you're making Malort popcorn with your popcorn buckets, you don't deserve to have popcorn buckets. Well, it was it was one of those like one dollar Halloween pumpkin buckets. Uh I had three of them out with candy and everyone just started grabbing candy and I said, Hey, I don't care how much you guys take, I don't need leftovers. Uh and I think he misunderstood that as go ahead and take the entire bucket, take all the candy. So that's on me. I should have been more clear with my instructions. Also, I've, I've spread this drink around. I've stirred it. Uh, it's it's weird because it, it has that first taste, which is delicious, just rum, simple syrup, lime juice. Like, it's sweet. It's a little boozy. It's good. Uh, and then lurking in the background is just a tinge of Malort to ruin it. Like, you just have mothballs stuck in your mouth somewhere you can't get out. So anyways, if you make this the right way, with any other liquor besides Malort being the topper, you're in for a good time. This is fucking delicious. There you have it. I'm just looking forward to the day you have the full-on Ace Ventura reaction to one of these things, and you just burn your clothes and shower while crying. Jamie, you don't know what I have prepared for the next few commentaries. I have things that make me want to throw up now just thinking about what I'm going to do to myself. Oh, you you think the, the cocktails are over <laughs> just because Jigsaw's dead? The cocktails <laughs> have only begun. Detective Elf, do you think you can walk away? Uh, no, I do not. 
I'm Somebody just saying, is going to yeah. cut open your stomach, and it's just going to be a congealed ball of malort. Yeah. Basically, as the movies get worse, I want to do more outrageous things with malort, and I have two ideas right now that should be considered war crimes. I'll leave it at that. Uh, look forward Good. to those, folks. Good. Good. We're only. I, love that. We're only I love that we're the only show that makes bad drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I gave them all the clues, Mr. Policeman. They could make a good Shut drink. Up, Cody. Shut could, the fuck up. They could make a delicious drink if they want to. I gave them the pieces. <laughs> oh my god, get all of the commentary. References the snowman, by the way. Uh, the snowman. A movie I still haven't artist. seen. A movie I have not seen, nor do I plan on seeing. Alright, folks. I think it's time for some star. Mike, uh, do you want to count us down? Yes, yes. I, also, and, uh, also, before just, we start, yeah, which version is this? Uh, this is the unrated version. Good to know. Which tends to be the most widely available version, so the odds of you watching on the theatrical only is slim, but uh, some – I don't know how streaming rights work where some streaming sites get uh, only theatrical. It's weird. Uh, yeah. Yes. You're looking also, for the copy I, I, that is one hour and 35 minutes. And I think, um, if I'm remembering right, recently these were all on Amazon Prime. They might have moved over to Shutter recently. So if you can't find yeah. it on Prime, check Shutter. If you can't find it on Shutter, uh, go buy them on disc. They're at every Target or Walmart you've ever walked into. It's true. The uh, the eight film collection is currently like five bucks or something. <laughs> Who needs the I'm last? I'm going to buy it because it's like, but it's not all of them. Eighty percent. That's great. That rounds up. That's a full collection. Update this shit and include everything. I, we've talked about this anyway. Yeah. And count to three. <laughs> After I say three, we will press play. One, two, three. Time for Saw Facts. Woo-hoo. They're back. Yay. This entry, once again, directed by Darren Lynn Bowsman. Uh, I'm sure you're sick of hearing me say it, but he directed Saw 2, 3, 4, and Spiral from the Book of Saw. So we actually we get a break from him after this entry, so appreciate them while you have them, folks. Uh, this entry was written by the writing pair of Patrick Milton and Marcus Dunstan. Uh, pretty notable because Lewinell wasn't behind this entry. He'd stepped away after three. Uh, Milton and Dunstan have done a lot of really cool genre stuff, including the Feast trilogy, Piranha 3 Double D. I like how I said a lot of cool stuff, and then I start with those. Uh, <laughs> the Collector and the Collection, uh, Dunstan actually directed both of those. Those are worth checking out if you haven't seen them, folks. I absolutely love them. Uh, and a personal favorite, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. They they wrote that. Our cast here, we've got Tobin Bell as Jigsaw and mostly a corpse. Uh, Costas Mandalore as Detective Hoffman. He kind of shifts into our main guy here. Uh, I promised Mike and Jamie I had dug up a Costas Mandalore fun fact that they would never guess. And it is now time for me to reveal that fact. In 1991... Mandalore was chosen by People Magazine as one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world. I believe it. I believe it. There you have it. Hoffman. I did not know... I did not know that particular fact, but I have been fascinated for years by the fact that Costas Mandalore was, like, very, very briefly considered to be a leading man. Like, there was five <laughs> seconds where he was almost Kevin Costner, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> Costas Mandalore. Uh, to cut away from our fun facts and Costas Mandalore for a second here, let's talk about this puppet. This is an amazing life cast when they're cutting into this Tobin Bell. 
this dummy actually had fake blood and tissue and ligaments and muscle all underneath it. So if they want to do autopsy stuff, they could actually do it on screen. They had they this just amazing made a whole mummy. Ass person. They pretty much did. It took them like two weeks or something just to build this one prop. Uh, so it makes for amazing things like this where they can actually like have a long cut where they're showing like him being scalped or whatever. Uh, also, I, I that fucking love away. the color grading in this scene so much. <sighs> Very great. Like, oh yeah, that just shiny red and the gray, which got which. I mean, uh, spoilers in case you were listening to this commentary, never having watched the movie. But what a almost stupid way to live you your in. life. Why are you <laughs> first, you're fucked up, folks at home. If you're doing you that, um, dummies, you made a lot of mistakes before you put on box office pulp, <laughs> Mister. I bet you're drinking the Malort right now. <laughs> but uh, actually, the color grading being a little bit different <laughs> gives away the fact that this is different in the timeline than the rest of the film, which is a nice little, like, subtle thing. It gives it a very unique look and also kind of, like, ensures that you can visually tell it is actually a different place in the timeline. Yeah. Plus, it makes that blood stand out so much. It's like a Sin City yellow bastard kind of detail. More More movies need to go for this look. This is very cool. Makes it also, pop. I, like, as someone I, who really can't see red very well, hey, it's red. I just want to say, the uh, the restraint it took to not have his skull be booby-trapped. <laughs> if this were the original script, it would have been. There would have been one unnamed extra who gets blown apart. Uh, one other little fun fact here, they actually had, like, a real mortician on set for this to help guide and make this as realistic as possible, which is one of the reasons, apparently, the MPAA didn't have them make major cuts to this, or any cuts, uh, which is surprising considering it is so gory. Basically, they got to go back and say, hey, this is the science. This is what actually would happen to you if someone was yeah, doing an autopsy. Yeah, it's very scientific. It's Like, it's gruesome, but it's this is what happens. We're not making shit up. Uh, and what a ballsy way to start your movie. Like, Jigsaw, your main arch enemy carrier of the franchise. Imagine if they started with Freddy Krueger on the slab and they're like, nope, this guy's as dead as can be. We have literally torn his brain out. It's a very declarative statement to start the movie, and I appreciate yeah. how ballsy that is. Yeah, no, he is definitely dead. It also sets up kind of like literally what the what a lot of the plot of the film will be, which is we're actually gonna kinda like get inside and dissect who Jigsaw is for the first the guy time. The guy who likes eating wax. Also, it says a lot about Bowsman's relationship with the producers that which sack the cassette player was to be lodged in was a fight. <laughs> it it felt like the producers and Bowsman fought on a lot of weird little things between three and four. Uh, if you listen to the commentary track with the producers, they keep mentioning how Bowsman was determined to get shots of a key because it was going to be very important to the film, and the producers refused to give him time to do so because they thought it was stupid to focus on a key. <laughs> Just little bits like that. And in the end, like, Strom, spoilers, uses a key. It's important. But they also don't spend that much time focusing on it, so you realize, like, both sides were correct. And I, I guess in the end, uh, saving the money is what matters. Anyways, got to finish off our fun facts here. Uh, we've got Scott Patterson as Agent Strom, who I was just talking about, uh, Betsy Russell as Jill, Lyric Bent as Rig. Our cinematography is by David A. Armstrong. He was the DP for the first six Saw movies, so you've heard his name quite a few times. Uh, our music is by Charlie Clouser, once again, uh, editing by Kevin Gruert. Uh He edited the first five Saw films, and then he would direct Saw 6, 7, and 10. Um 
This time, though, he had a partner and he was assisted by Brett Sullivan on editing duties. Our release date was October 26, 2007, uh, just one year after the previous film, maintaining that pattern of one Saw movie every Halloween. Our budget was $10 bucks, and the worldwide box office would go on to be $139.4 million, which is pretty darn good. Uh, this, however, was about $30 million less than Saw 3. Uh, the budget didn't increase from the previous entry, though, and it's hard to complain about like a 14-time return in box office. So still a pretty successful franchise at this point, and no reason for them to stop making Saw films. Yeah, and we're getting into the producers pinching pennies. Um, fun fact about this scene: uh, they're they are in this um, they're in this room because Bowsman needed it for Repo the Genetic Opera, which he was secretly filming at night. Yeah, this um, is, this is Marnie's tomb here. <laughs> that is some Roger That's Corman the kind only of reason shit. Like, I've got here. a stage. Let's just put all the actors on it, and I can make two productions for the price of one. Otherwise, why is this in a mausoleum? Makes no sense. I, it, phantasm reference. We can just say Jigsaw it's a phantasm just reference. Just died, so he had death on his mind. I don't know. It's some bullshit. Um, apparently, the prosthetics for this were set up in such a way where the actor playing art really couldn't talk during this scene. Uh, however, the other actor could see. His prosthetics uh, allowed him to actually see. I've mentioned this in previous commentaries that... Watching this trap was the moment I kind of started... I officially had lost interest in the series. <laughs> I don't think it's as dumb as I remembered. Uh, th this is the moment where you can start... To, you, I, in my opinion, you can start to see the wheels kind of falling off the traps as the series goes. Yeah, there's like some vague idea where if you know like he's a lawyer, it's kind of there's something kind of interesting about the communication thing. But yeah. the trap itself is just you don't get enough information about it. You don't quite understand how anything's supposed to work. Unlike most other traps, including in this movie, you kind of look at it and you understand it. This I don't really get it. Yeah. And I would agree with the producers when they say this game was never really fair to the guy without eyes. <laughs> the guy who can't talk basically can't say like, here's the solution to the trap, but he can do everything else pretty normally. <laughs> the blind guy is just fucking in it to die. So I love in the commentary uh, lyric asks why he didn't just immediately use the implement <laughs> to open his mouth and Balsman tells him to shut up because it's a Saw movie. <laughs> It's one of those deals where you're going to nitpick the saw trap because everyone's always like, I could get out of it because I'm not an idiot. And this is one of the few where it's like, all right, yeah, this this doesn't this quite stupid. work. <laughs> yeah, we, ha we had a week to film an entire movie. Give us a break. Yeah. And I mean, because some of them, they're on a timer, right? So, fuck, you only have 30 seconds. You don't have time to do that kind of work. You can't use that excuse here. I, I really do like when he opens his mouth though, and then screams and all the blood. That's that's good. That's good stuff. That's <laughs> I good like stuff. it. The blood. So one of the things we wanted to get into was the differences between the original script that was written for this film and what they ended up with, because they're they're starkly different products. Uh, the original script focused not on Rig as the main character, but uh, brought Matthews back. It actually used Detective Matthews 
as the main character put into another set of tests fairly similar to the ones we see here. Matthews with his iron boot that he'd <laughs> clomp around in because despite the fact that Winnell and Juan are no longer attached to the franchise, they were still kind of doing their type of imagery, which I do appreciate. <laughs> yeah. And actually that was that would have been the second original script because if you want to go back a little bit further, when Milton when they when the verse writers came on, they were what would be what would become the collector was the Midnight Man, and this would have been adapted into kind of like a straight prequel story about Jigsaw's like origin going back to his younger days, like with uh, someone breaking into the house and stuff. Um but that was I'm very glad it became the collector. I'm, I'm glad that yeah. became its own separate thing because uh, it works so well as its own franchise and it very it feels very distinct. Pushing Jigsaw into a home invasion film could be done, but I yeah, that could have been done at the exact moment that script was written. I don't think I think that would have been extremely trite a second later. Yeah. Also. Uh, one of the things I really actually appreciate about the original script from four was that it starts not with this kind of stuff, but it starts with resolving Jeff's storyline from three. Uh, yeah. As, as soon as Jigsaw dies, Jeff is, is putting together clues and realize, Oh, I've got to sneak down this little tunnel. And then he finds uh, the man who'd been cheating on his wife in a trap. Or actually, I sorry, I take it back. Jeff ends up in a trap. He's basically in a blender. Uh, and the guy who's been cheating on his wife, who knows that Jeff's wife is now dead because of Jeff's actions, has to decide if he's going to forgive Jeff or kill Jeff. Uh, it turns out the guy kills Jeff. You know, he doesn't save him. Mostly because Jeff is just an asshole. Like, he just keeps <laughs> screaming at this guy when he's trying to help him. <laughs> he's the audience at that point. Like, do we want to save Jeff? <laughs> Like this guy has to like stick his hand through like some broken glass or something to retrieve a key and he's going to do it. And Jeff just keeps screaming at him, calling him like a fucking idiot because he's not doing it fast enough. And it's eventually the guy just goes, eh, fuck you. And it lets Jeff die. So Jeff gets mulched. Like it's, it's a really a blender trap and it just turns him into paste, uh, which I think would have been really gruesome and fun to watch on screen, honestly, very over the top, but fuck it. I think it would have been cool. Uh, and then because it's a Saw movie and that guy chose to let Jeff die, he's pulled into his own trap, dropped into the blender, and turned to paste as well. Which uh, also feels very Saw, like, oh, we both get turned to paste, dummies. It's pretty awesome. It and would have been like a very, paste, like... Their paste goes into a tube and hydraulically opens up the door with the daughter inside. Yeah. Which is such a cartoony idea. I would have loved to have seen it shot. Yeah, with no one else really around at that point to operate the ride. I love that this is all automated <laughs> using yes. like blood weights. It's it's very silly, but I would I think I would have forgiven it. I was on board for that part because I liked how it just immediately wrapped up the Saw Three storyline. Otherwise, yeah, people are sitting through this whole movie wondering like, what the fuck is going on with Jeff? What's going on? Yeah, it the, comes uh, together. The again, but... Saw, Saw Four script is not a flash sideways like this one. Yeah. Which, considering I actually really like The Flash Sideways... Uh, it's the most know, interesting thing about the movie. It's 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 very cool, though I did much more appreciate the original scripts than than this. I, I don't I don't want to hate on this movie, because I know it has, like, massive fans and all that, but um, so I'm going to be fair. But I did 
quite enjoy the script more, especially because it did resolve Jeff's storyline immediately. And it felt like even though Jeff died, it felt like there was pointed projector, uh, a, a pointed projection of the story where then the daughter is let, is let out. She then goes outside and that is what brings the police to Jigsaw's lair, which was his intention. Yeah. Uh, to jump back into the movie that actually got made, we just had our introduction to Strom and Agent Perez, who are marching in and kind of demanding the crime scene. I think we have a lot of polar reactions on these two characters. Perez, I'm sorry, not so much Perez. No one really thinks about her. Uh, but Strom and Hoffman. I'm on the edge of goddamn Hoffman. I do not like him. Uh, Strom, I have always been a kind of a fan of, and it surprised me how many people just fucking hate Strom. There, there's a very strong reaction to Strom of dislike, and I'm like, this guy's not taking shit. So many people have been murdered due to Jigsaw. I can understand why he's being a hard ass. I'm 50-50 on, on Strom. I, th I think my thing is I just don't like... I like, like, some of the performance in places like this where it feels like, honestly, where he's sticking to script. Mm -hmm. But as he, as the actor goes and starts doing more and ad-libbing he makes the character so cartoonish yeah. that he kind of stops being fun to me at reading the original script and seeing like the original intention of strom which is very much like the scene that we just passed he's actually a really good character and i really liked following that character and it 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 promised to saw five that would have followed strom in a very different kind of way than we we, we eventually get well, it's interesting because it's what makes a decent Saw protagonist is an extremely nebulous thing. Like the the closest to a model you have is Matthews, and I think in that original script, Strom kind of plays as an alternate version of Matthews who isn't horrible and corrupt. Yeah. Which I, I think there's a very intentional parallel between those two, uh, th those two people's journey in that script that again, you don't really get with Strom and Riggs here. Plus in the original script, Strom is given more redeeming characteristics, like the way he protects and, and tries to, you know, save Perez when he can. He, he lightens up and yeah, he he's yeah. They're, they seem to be almost always going... a hard ass. He has a second side they show yes. later into the script. They don't really give you the same level of that in this movie. Yeah, they they kind of build to it, and they actually I, I was confused at first. Like I thought I kind of rolled my eyes. Like they were doing like the big age difference thing between him and Perez in the script, and then as it kind of unfolds, you you start understanding they did that for like there's this vague father-daughter thing kind of going on. Mm -hmm. but then, yeah, it's not I, I really like, like, he's not a aspect. creep. Yeah, he's not, he's yeah. not like after her. He's literally like, I, I am a mentor. I'm protecting her. And physically she's in danger. So I'm going to throw my body over her kind of stuff. Which is nice because in Saw, we rarely get redeeming qualities in a lot of characters. Yeah. Yes. Almost everyone is just kind of a bastard-coated bastard. And Strom starts off in that mold, and then as, as he breaks down a little bit, you realize, oh, no, this guy actually might just be an okay dude underneath it all. He's just also, abrasive. Also, there the script's very different handling of Jill definitely changes things where him going apeshit on her is a lot more justified because she's yeah. giving him absolutely nothing and refuses to 
doesn't even really acknowledge that John ever became a jigsaw. Like she's in complete denial that any of that, that any of that is real, even though it's all staring her right in the face. Right. Yeah. Here, I, I understand why people, I guess, would be upset with Strom because he just seems abusive. He gets in that room with Jill, who doesn't. He just seem... goes immediately to a hundred. Yeah, that's the problem. Like, which it... makes him just another shitty dude in a Saw movie who is going to end yeah. up in a trap eventually because he sucks. Yeah. So going back to the idea of in a trap because you suck. <laughs> the crux of this movie is rig needs to be tested. And the, the reasons they eventually give for this are a little muddled, which I hate. Like, they should have picked one and really hammered on it instead of trying to go in two directions. One is he doesn't appreciate the things he has well enough. He's too fixated on his job. So he doesn't notice that he's losing his wife, that he's obsessed with the case and not living, which is a typical jigsaw motivation for, like, putting someone in a trap. I understand that. But the other thing they kind of hint at, and it, this was in the original script as well, He's being tested because he needs to learn he can't save everyone, which is such yeah. a weird, stupid, moral way to go forward in a Saw film. <laughs> Jigsaw's whole thing is, I'm going to take the most reprehensible people and put them in these awful traps to give them one last chance. The fact I that the movie him. comes around and says, like, hey, this guy's pretty shitty. You should let him die. And that's the lesson you're supposed to learn. You're a bad guy if you try and save people. It's, it's very edgelord to me. I don't like it. What I love is that's explained so clunkily in the final montage that it comes across like he's being tested because he keeps walking into doors without checking. Like Jigsaw's the one-armed yeah. dude from Arrested Development. And yeah, that's really why you always funny. knock on the door. That's it. E that, yeah. Even big uh, Saw 4 fans, I, I think, will make fun of the fucking, fucking door thing. The door thing, the, yeah. My very nihilistic approach of you can't save everybody, coupled with the flashbacks of how John felt about Jill's work and how that uh, molded him into Jigsaw. The idea of this being a recruitment for Riggs in some way is really interesting, but it's so – it's not even – it's like quarter-baked because – they had to scramble to get a script together so quickly. So I, I don't really even shot them things. I think they yeah. still shot scenes that w that were leaning way towards him being recruited that they just left because it was it was just too much happening at once. That's that's kind of the thing. It feels like, man, uh, there there's so many kind of weird cross motivations here. You could say they're testing Rig to make him an apprentice. They're testing Rig because they actually think he needs to learn a lesson. Uh, you could uh, view it as Hoffman is just cleaning up the police department and he just wants to get rid of everybody. Uh, I, I don't like how messy Hoffman is it really feels. Cab. <laughs> <laughs> in the original script, it's Matthews who's doing all of, uh, the Rig pieces, right? Like he's the one in yeah. being tested once again. And I think that works better because it almost feels like Jigsaw is just obsessed with this one dude. Like, I'm going to keep fucking testing you until you either die or you get it right. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing that I really, that really stuck in my head walking away from my rewatch of this uh, for the first time since the movie came out, which I remember on that initial watch just thinking, this movie doesn't really have 
anything philosophically it's reaching for and we don't we're not really learning anything about jigsaw other than some random origin facts that aren't really telling us that much but upon a rewatch if you kind of squint there's a lot of connections to various things that maybe just were not hammered home that well just because of the the sheer lack of prep time they had at any point with this. Like, there's there's an interesting point they're trying to make about why Jigsaw doesn't like heroes, which is a weird sticking point with the character that's always been around since even uh, his treatment of Tap in the first movie that's never entirely gelled and has always felt like somewhat anachronistic to everything else with the character. But like like Mike was saying, if you look at the flashbacks and what they seem to be saying with Rig, you can say like, okay, Jigsaw hates people who feel compelled to save others. Because when you save somebody else, you're fucking with the natural order of things and you're fucking with the plans of other people because you selfishly felt the need to save someone, which, as John has seen in his own mind, does nothing. It's one thing where I, I definitely think harping more on John's abandonment of Jill after the miscarriage would have been for the better. Like, yeah, I, I'm very fascinated by the idea that the second Jill's kind heart delays a plan of John Kramer, she's worthless to him, and she's just another bleeding heart interloper. Like, I think focusing w- way more on that and maybe... Uh, and weaving that into the main plot a bit more would have led to a really fascinating movie. And with what we have on screen, there's just kind of the fragments uh, of that point littered throughout. Yeah, there's definitely not enough flashbacks to to Jigsaw. I, I think that I think everybody can agree that it's the highlight of the the film, especially just get get allowing Tobin Bell to like really really give it. Oh, the entire. I, I think the. Uh, the the thing that really points to that and like the good and bad parts of uh, kind of playing fast and loose with that stuff is all of the year of the pig imagery, mm-hmm. which is really, really cool and psychologically fascinating when you piece that together like yourself. Okay. What, what, what does the year of the pig stand for? That that symbolizes fertility. So it's very important for John's son to be born during the year of the pig, that being taken away from him due to charity then becomes, <laughs> and he associates that with the, the pig. All of that is so fascinating. But none of that's in the script. So the movie doesn't really reflect that stuff. So it's just kind of, it's actor stuff that's there. Yeah, they just mention Year of the Pig, and that's pretty much it. And the like, way they do my... it, too, feels so fucking hammy. Like, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I see what I did there. The, uh, the way it's presented it's in the film is just because of the mask, and that's it. Yeah, it's 
Um, they just wear the mask. You know, they're like, he likes pigs so much, he makes his apprentice wear pig masks, and it's like, this sounds fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's the way back there. There was a good idea. It was just never allowed to actually germinate. Like, it never yeah. really propagate into the film. Hey, look, well, it's all we this have guy is Jill supposed saying, to be important. All we have is just Jill saying, have you heard of the Chinese Zodiac? Well, that's what John was concerned with. That's just done fucking non sequitur. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. fucking... I can understand why Strom is yelling at her like, that's a, stu- a stupid fucking thing to say, lady. What are you talking about? Um, even this trap here is actually a really good summation of Jigsaw's philosophy when you piece it together as to what's it, through the flashbacks and like what he's actually trying to communicate that the movie isn't really communicating very well. It, it It's something that's not very clear in the picture, but if Rig had just walked away, the trap never would have activated. Him actively trying to get her out of it is what activates it, and then she tries to kill him hmm. for the plan. And that that's a summation of really what hap- what Jigsaw feels happened to Jill, that she made this happen, that, that the miscarriage was her fault. Like, she wanted to save this person, and the causation was this. Which does make Jigsaw look like an even bigger asshole. Uh, Once again, we've got the problem of not committing hard enough to making Jigsaw shit. Yeah. So the original version of this trap, uh, one, great transition. Uh, So they actually just had like two sets built together so they could physically like push a person through into the next set. And there you go. We're just filming a new scene. Really, really cool stuff, and I'm sure a huge logistic pain in the ass to make happen. <laughs> well, well, I just want to real quick say that bo- that is bo- it has bothered me listening throughout all these commentaries. How many, how much Bowsman was teased over trying to get his transitioned it, transitions in, as if that was a super pretentious arty thing. And it's like let the man make a film for the love of God. <laughs> I'm sorry, he's a director. But it, it, for the amount of time and money they have, I can understand why they're pissed off. Like, God damn, it's going to be so much harder to do it this way. Why? Come on. We just uh, need Coke money. That's kind of kind of So anyways, back to the original script for this. Kept the idea that Rig was trying to, uh, I'm sorry, Matthews was trying to save someone who was in a trap. And he essentially springs it. And... That one has a little more nuance to it because there's another tape recorder with the instructions for the person that uh, is trying to kill him that they've hidden. Like they kicked under a bed so Rick doesn't notice like there's extra instructions. Um, for some reason, this room is also covered in skewers. So when they have a fight, eventually the guy like basically gets bumped into one and just impales himself, which would have been very goofy. I, I will say the traps in that script are really bad. <laughs> really? The, I liked the- a lot of those. I, I liked a lot of those uh, traps. The skewer room, uh, better, visually, actually. I never quite understood. So I'm like, there's just a lot of spikes in a room? Visually, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of them didn't make sense. And then stuff that probably would never have made it to screen, just fun to write. That was kind of my thing, just like, I'm ha- I had trouble picturing some of those in my head. They were, they yeah. were very like the idea tonsil one. Yeah, like the tonsil one, to me, is like really cool. It probably it would never have made it to screen, but... It, I agree. I, I found in it very theory, cool. on page, it's very cool because there's an original trap in in the first script where there's essentially you're playing um, operation. 
Matthews yeah. has to reach in this guy's throat. And if he touches any of these wires, it's going to kill the person. So he has to reach in with a steady hand and try and pull like a key out of the back of this person's throat. Um, I don't know how you show that. I don't <laughs> like you just set up like, don't. I don't think, with a I camera mean, at, at least the bottom. Not on and... the, the budget of this in the time, it, they wouldn't be able to do it. You'd have to be very creative to make that work. It's a much bigger sequence. Like I can imagine the producers reading that entire script, which took place in multiple locations in a city. I know. Like went outside and wasn't filmed all in one goddamn building. They must've been like, we have to spend money. Um, Yeah. Because it's like, there's like, that's the first trap. Matthews is Matthews doing. has that's, to that's like run across town. He has a, a sequence where he has to evade the police on like it, a subway. It's Die Hard with the Vengeance, but with Saul. It's actually really fucking cool. Yeah, that's my it, favorite that's thing about part. it. It feels like uh, I'm, I'm curious if you agree. Like everyone made the seven comparison when the original Saw came out, but that was the first time I actually saw something that felt like, okay, this is seven in the Saw universe. Like it felt yeah, like very, a, very much like a '90s neo noir. Yeah, especially it whenever was... Hoffman joins Matthews as kind of his partner for the second half of the movie, which was yes. great. Which so is in really the, great. In the, in the script, Hoffman is in a trap, and uh, Matthews goes in. He has to basically he sneaks in. He circumvents the trap by yeah, not going through brilliant. the front door. He goes in through like the window, which means the the trip wires never go off. So he has to save Matthews from a trap that hasn't sprung, which makes it easier. And and then they buddy up. Although in doing so, he accidentally injects Hoffman with like a nerve agent, which is set up very clumsily in the script. It just feels like you find out later, of course, Hoffman is one of the bad guys and he intentionally injected himself. But even that's like, bro, I don't think you had to do that. I don't, I don't think you actually had to go that far into theater. It's OK. It's a first draft. Yeah. <laughs> But that was that was a very cool idea. I loved how open it made the movie. It made it it would have been like the biggest Saw film. Uh, I think it's also a little silly because we have a similar problem in the movie as is now. Where Rick has 90 minutes to get through all this gauntlet style trap system to to get to the area where he's not even supposed to be. In the original script, it's set up very similarly. Matthews has like multiple timers around town that he sees reminding him like he has to get to this place to not go inside of it within the time limit. And it just feels so silly. Like, how is a guy with one leg who's wanted by the police somehow running through an entire town in like two hours? (laughs) Matthews is an action hero in that movie. It's kind of hilarious. He is, yeah. Like he steals a homeless guy's jacket so he can blend in better because he doesn't have like all of his clothes are coked coked in blood. It's Interesting. I really liked what they were going for, to be honest, and that would have been a really cool, dynamic way to run through the movie. It doesn't really fit the same here, because one, I feel like the, the rig tests don't make a lot of sense to me. I don't have the same connection no. to rig as I do to Matthews. Um, I can also so never in, tell in if, script- he's leaving, if he's leaving and we're just seeing him go through different buildings or if he's just in the same building. The geography yeah. of this movie has never made sense to me. Yeah, it get, it gets messy. Um, yeah. I think it's supposed to mostly be in the same hotel, but that doesn't necessarily make sense either. No, uh, no, he's supposed to be going from place to place, but it just doesn't. There's they, no outside. You know, yeah, there's no <laughs> has, outside. So he has the same amount of time to get through all of his traps as the length of the actual movie. So it does one of those movie dilation timeline things that drives me nuts. Uh, 
They kept the ice thing though. That that's in the original script and that's in this movie. They really were into the idea of ice. Only instead of Matthews being on it in the original version, uh, it's Matthews' wife, which gives him really clear motivation to get in there and try and save her. Like I don't yeah. want my ex-wife and, to fucking dive in a trap. And I should say they don't have the ice two ice blocks. They've decided it near the third act to include to have come down and crush her head or something like that. Like no, yeah. she just chokes to death. Uh, she gets shot, I believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the, the as, trap as is she would just get hung. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one of those deals where some of the best saw traps are the very simple ones. And I think the ice is <laughs> more towards like, the, okay, sure. I, I get it. Well, it's, I, my uh, thing is just, was the ice, all, those ice cubes also melting? Was that like dripping on Matthew's head the entire time? <laughs> if they, if they, the ice would have been fine if it was only the one he was standing on. The fact they included the fucking. The blocks are dumb. The blocks, yeah. And the original script also had a cool thing where it's like she could activate like a blowtorch to try and like get the rope close to it to try to burn it. But that just increased the temperature of the room, which was made of copper, which holds yeah. heat. So the temperature could never go back down. So that, it was actually kind of fun. Although, goddamn, John, that's a lot of money to spend on copper. Also, also to, to show, I guess I wasn't paying attention earlier, they did just show Rig entering this place from outside. Yeah. We don't see outside, but we they, see him They show in. a lot of doors of, of buildings, which is just the one building. A big part of the original is Matthews has to do some detective work, crazy, and figure out where the fuck the next trap is. And it's normally not anything too crazy. They get more complex as they go along. But there's like a hint, and he has to figure out what it is, which adds to the tension, because... What if he guesses the wrong spot? He won't make it. There's not enough time. This one, Rig just kind of, he just appears in the next place. Yeah. Like, I think they just give him the address and stuff and then like, you here, put this mask travel. on, do their thing. It, it just, yeah. I, I've never It feels like such a B plot. The Rig stuff is supposed to be the driver like, of the movie and it doesn't matter. It just feels like a C plot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you just want to get back to the, to the Jigsaw stuff and Jill and flashbacks. And I, I feel bad because. I really like the character of Rick, especially yes. as presented in this and as built up. And I think he could have gone on to like really be one of the main characters of the series. Right. Eric's got a lot of stage presence too. Yeah. Like you, you can, you can see why they plucked him pre, pretty much out of a crowd in the original movie to, to slowly become a, a lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's one of those deals where you've got a great actor who's being done a complete disservice by the script. Oh, the pig mask. Yeah, he's not wearing away. anymore. <laughs> he got his trailer shot. This is really the sequence that stands out for me as I makes me... Di- if this sequence wasn't here, I would have less distaste for the film. I'd say I even have distaste for the film, but <clears throat> this shows like... This feels like such a problem and so... It doesn't feel right to Saw. You know, I think it's trying to go for something by being like specifically harsh but it doesn't quite capture it and it it, a a lot of things like this and even the way the traps work even in the original script one of the fundamental problems i have i think with dunstan and melton as saw writers is they seem to not quite get the fully grasp the philosophical nature of how more than just Jigsaw's motivation worked and the way it would bleed into other things. 
that's this when you start getting into traps they're just kind of like overly big and ridiculous and they're just about pain and have very tenuous connections to some grander idea mm-hmm. and this kind of feels like that where it's just something that's fucked up because fucked up yeah i mean it's typical saw where you almost have to present a caricature of a person like we need people to understand this guy's bad how do we do it he's the fucking biggest worst sex pervert rapist possible and it's it's a little cruel too i think feel to the actor because they specifically cast like a heavy set guy and then they kind of grime him up a little bit to seem like sweaty and greasy like very it leans in that yeah. yeah it leans into like oh the fat pervert and it's like eh. and not, not it's, to mention we're going into the part to the uh corner of saw where we're just punishing criminals yeah so it's eh. It doesn't really work for me. I, I guess the in the context, is, like the trap is limbs flying off. It's so cartoonish. <laughs> yeah. Or you have to plunge these mini sickles into your eyeballs one at a time. It's like, can't he just do them both? I feel like doing both at the same time would be a lot easier. I always get weird. I need a flashback to Jill's hospital. And great thing that's in the original script, it's here, is that everybody here is from previous Saw movies. And yeah. that's such like brilliant fucking ideas. Like, oh, that's where he his targets actually weren't random. They were all very specific. All people he was uh, aware of. That is a nice touch. I, I like that they stuck with that idea too, because it would have been so easy to just cast any random person to be in the background instead also, of getting actual uh, actors back for you know <laughs> no name cameos just to be in the background for the fans who are paying attention. It also adds a certain abominable Doctor Fibes quality to it, which. I mean, it's amazing we've never brought this up in, in the commentaries before, but that is, I feel like that's almost, it is almost certain that that was one of the influences on uh, Winnell and Juan. Had to have been, yeah. Especially with the the end of the Abominable Dr. Fives, which is just a saw trap. <laughs> Get Got Tobin him. Bell to sing somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we I, I'm a little upset because we passed the point where we could use Tobin Bell the same way we use Vincent Price. Like in, in reality, we should have had Tobin Bell just doing a bunch of low budget horror anthology movies for years. He should have been doing we a really bunch of did waste Tobin movies. Bell. Now he's like eighty and it's like, well, he can still be in movies, but we missed out. Like Vincent Price did so many cool roles in the sixties and seventies, and uh, we could have been doing that with Tobin. He's like yeah, Lynn to be fair, Shea. Tobin was born eighty. <laughs> so we didn't uh, we didn't appreciate how awesome Lynn Shay would be as the old lady in a horror film until it was too late. Yeah, yeah. Also, I love proud Papa Jigsaw, just so out of place. <laughs> Here, this, this child will love this terrifying doll. <laughs> I like how they even film like this happy memory of them as if like, they're in a haunted house that just isn't filled with ghosts yet. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the fact that originally there were he was supposed to show her uh the homemade mouse traps he had constructed <laughs> where he had sawed mice. Which I kind of feel like it. I think uh, Ballasman said said as much. Was like, so he does the most cliche serial killer thing humanly (laughs) possible. 
<laughs> and this woman is like running out screaming. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad they realized that, like, oh shit, this is dumb. Let's let's uh, not include that. Uh, I do one like thing I want to mention, I hate, keep, I hate going back to the original script so often, but one last thing There's I want to just, talk about that. One thing I just want to mention is the funniest part to me was each time the cops, they would get to the crime scene, of course, after Rig left, uh, after Matthews left, uh, and they would find the bodies, but all the traps would still be active. So it just becomes like a running joke where each time they go in, some like henceforth unknown member of the police squad would just get so murdered by shirts. a trap. Yeah. And it's just like, come on, everyone, why are you even doing this anymore? like there's one with just a bunch of axes attached to the top of the room and like if you hit a tripwire they'll fall down so like a photographer gets smashed in the face with an axe there's one where there's a bomb that goes off there every fucking room has some poor like red shirt just murdered for no reason just to add more jumps to the script i'm like this is so fucking stupid I'm, i'm so happy they toned it back so sorry, I cut you off, Mike, but I had to mention, like, my favorite stupid part of that trip. <laughs> just, I couldn't stop laughing every time the cops came to a new crime scene. <laughs> uh, no, I was just gonna, I was just, uh, wanted to bring up that as much as I don't like this sequence, I do, uh, like the inclusion of the, um, the red room, just like a callback to, like, Jigsaw doing specifically a callback to Adam. Yeah. I'm almost done with my Malort drink, and it, it is getting worse as it gets down to the bottom, like I thought it would. Um, I am Jigsaw, is what I'm saying. Also, I want to talk about uh, Eric being alive for a second, which is something I greatly dislike. Um, though, but Mike, to have was, him unrecognizable with a beard on a TV screen. Come on. That was a big fight with the producers, too, right? Because Bowsman yeah. wanted him to be stabbed to death in three. Um, and the producer's like, no, we could reuse him in four. It's stupid to get rid of that guy. Uh, and then they couldn't actually get Wahlberg to, like, want to come back to the film series. <laughs> I love all of that ruination for an actor they hadn't talked to about coming back. Yeah, he they, was they, filming something else at the same yeah. time. So they got him back for, like, a day or two just to film his little pieces on the ice block, just to kill him off anyways. <laughs> and, this yeah, is just so close-ups, we- too. It's mostly not Wahlberg in this movie. Yeah, yeah. so they completely fucked, like, Bowsman's intention with that and kind of muddied up things. I mean, granted, in the context, Amanda still, I guess, believes that she killed Eric, but it's not very clear because the way that they kind of re-edited the flashback to make it look like she didn't directly kill him by stabbing him in the throat and stuff. Yeah, Um the original script, I will say, does a little bit better of a job of at least justifying it by having Jigsaw, not Hoffman, Jigsaw specifically save Eric and keep him hidden from Amanda so she continues to believe that she killed him. As he nurses him back to health like the old blind man in Halloween 5. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some movie gloss happening there as well because as as the script goes matthew's eventually like oh right jigsaw was there and so was <laughs> hoffman yeah. oh no even though like they held him for weeks or months i don't even remember what the timeline was and they they did surgery on him they lay engraved numbers on the back of his teeth for a trap later on <laughs> i will say it is worth it to see uh jigsaw going around his lair doing nefarious things in his cape and cowl <laughs> which we do not get enough of in the series exactly more of i've been okay please. with it yeah 
But yeah, it, it, it was it was kind of fun. It's it's very Machiavellian. It's it's very over the top, but in a correct saw way. It yeah. was cool seeing I, a I super villain that. jigsaw from the first movie come back again. Exactly. Yeah. And like I said before, I did appreciate that it gives more cohesion to all of Saw because it makes it feel like outside the first movie, this was all about Jigsaw finding one particular dude he was like, just fixate on, like, this is the guy. I'm going to just keep working on this one guy. Everyone else is incidental. And it was yeah. it, it really highlighted the, the fact that Matthews was specifically connected to, you know, pretty much everybody in the room and in, in Saw 2 and even beyond that. And, you know, everything kind of like circled around Matthew, so he kind of became obsessed with him. Yeah. Not, not to mention, I, I just like the, I kind of like the Hannibal Lecter aspect of Jigsaw becoming obsessed with Matthews because, well, he failed the test. But Every then, test. But, but then he succeeded. It, he succeeded at escaping from a previous failed test that killed somebody else. So he so he hasn't redeemed himself, but he's also proved himself interesting. So maybe I can play with that more. Yeah. I don't know what they would have done for a Saw 5 if they had gone with the original ideas. Because Matthew still dies. Uh, he dies at yeah, the end of the Which is strip. something I don't think I... I don't feel like that's earned. Uh, no. After, I feel after like that, just to kill him. If they had left Matthews as the main character in four and put him through all of this, I think you need to go whole hog and he becomes the new face. You just have like a rivalry kind of ongoing cartoonish run between Jigsaw and Matthews. Matthews maybe like getting a little bit more cut apart or losing more in each movie, which the more I think about, it, the more I like because it gives you yeah. an emotional stake in the hero and there could actually be an end game to the Saw universe. So yeah, exactly. as it is, just kind of wraps up when it's like, oh, I guess we've dealt with all the apprentices now. I I guess maybe we left room. There could be more. Version being a like Strom going off to to do, deal with uh, Jigsaw's traps that he laid before his death, because that's what that original trilogy would have like really been about. Yeah, is everything Jigsaw set up. Bringing back the drill, the dude with the fucking drill trap in the flashback in the first movie, um, to be an underling, um, but like Matthews chasing after Hoffman, like they have such a connection in that original script that would have been yeah. really interesting. So we saw a too, which is fascinating. Yeah, so we yeah. saw a scene ago. They changed it out. So Rig is the guy who beats up a guy, uh, and it's supposed to be Matthews and and. Mandalore is really covering from. They're both crooked, dirty cops who have been cheating the system back and forth. And it's interesting because Mandalore isn't punishing Matthews for being a dirty cop. It's really like, no, we both agree. Those people were scum and they like deserve what they got. Uh, I think you should go further, which is an interesting angle. <laughs> uh, sorry, I just got distracted by the actual movie we're supposed to be talking about. I this is one of those. They oh, wanted an actual prop baby. Yeah. And that was struck down immediately. <laughs> Yeah, everyone got better minds about no. that. Yeah, we don't need to have a fetus shoot out of this poor woman. Yeah, uh, God, that that scene is so fucking brutal. Really well. What done. I was going to say the the original, not the original original script that I keep harping about, but everything about that idea was the same. Like there was always going to be her trapped in that kind of room, 
And I hate that it works so much better on page than what we really see because there's an angle of entrapment. Uh, the original idea was, right, these doors lock. So if you're in between those two and you don't have the key, you are stuck in that area, which is what yeah. was going to happen to her. So there's going to be a little bit more of tension and panic where she realized, like, I want to go out that door to freedom. I can't open the door. I'm trapped. I'm stuck between the two doors. And there's a lunatic on the other end who's threatening my life and just wants drugs. That's that's a pretty good, scary beat. Uh, but they have to run through it so fast, it doesn't really play in the movie. You get the idea she's caught there. And the yeah. ends are still the same where she loses the child because he opens the door and slams her into it. It, it works. It does what it's supposed to. It's functional. But I think there was an, a, a vein there they could have mined for a lot more tension. It wouldn't have necessarily been a Saw move because Saw doesn't typically <laughs> do those things, at least at this point in the Saw films. Not at this but point, if, no. If this were like a traditional horror movie, that could have been a couple minute long, really good nail-biting scary scene. And the payoff would have been essentially that miscarriage. Like uh, apparently that would have been a shot brutal moment. long, but it just did. Like in the edit, it just didn't work. Which just yeah, hard to get. They had to reshoot so much shit in this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it, it, it sucks it, it, because in a Saw film, I understand why they did it the way they did, but I also don't agree with the Saw methodology for a lot of these scenes. It seems like they're only saving themselves up for traps. That's the only time you can save for tension. And it's like, no, yeah. man, this That's is, this is time a major get... moment in Saw, they... Jigsaw's life. Like, take the time. This is like a yeah. key capstone moment. I, I, in, I feel like that's the only time. The traps are the only times they have more than a day to film. Um, it's also a really cool idea that she, like, ends up in what is essentially kind of a jigsaw trap, but of her own making. Which I think plays into a lot of, like, jigsaw psyche stuff. That's it's kind of interesting, but obviously it's really hard to get across anything that's not in prose. Yeah. That's, it's just one of those bummers. It's, it's back to the idea of like the throat trap we were talking earlier. Like, Oh, that sounds really cool. How are we going to film it? We have no idea. So it will be cut. <laughs> like you can, you can write stuff. Can you represent it on screen? Uh, not with the time and money we have. All right, moving on. Uh, which gets me to, I wrote like a fucking weird little mini thesis weeks ago when I was doing prep for this episode. Uh, and now I'm just going to go into it because I took the time to write it and God damn it, I'm going to say the words I wrote. So you, you guys are familiar with Stephen King's approach to horror, right? That there's kind of three levels to what a horror can be. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So there's terror, which he considered the highest level. That's the fear struck in imagination. That's you imagining there's something awful behind the door and you don't know what it is and your mind takes it to the highest level. Uh, then there's horror, which is the middle level, and that is the graphic portrayal of the unbelievable. Um, so King gives a couple examples of this in Dance Macabre, uh, like spiders the size of bears or the dead waking up and walking around. And then the lowest level he has is the gross out which is gore scenes. You know, that that's like when you see phlegm popping out of a corpse or a saw trap that rips some guy's arms and legs off. Most people would probably put saw into gross out. They, they wouldn't even consider the other two levels of horror as what saw does. Uh, they would say it's all about gore. <laughs> I was actually at a bar a couple days ago. Um, and one of the bartenders was talking about having a mini horror marathon for Halloween because they didn't have to work and they didn't want to go out. Uh, and they mentioned they watched Saw 10 and all they said was, oh, it's torture porn. 
and then walked off. And in, in my head, I'm like, I don't want to cause a scene at my local bar, but I, <laughs> you're wrong, lady. You're wrong. You pull out your own tape recorder and play our commentary. Yeah. <laughs> she also mentioned, oh, I saw the new Poltergeist and I was just sitting in my seat fuming like, what fucking movie are you talking about? There hasn't been a new Poltergeist in years. Um, which is just me being an asshole. Like <laughs> she's not being mean about it. She just has no horror. Uh, but anyways, that's that's the common perception from people that don't watch a lot of horror is that Saw, Saw is just gore. It's the gross out lowest common denominator horror. Uh, and far be it from me to say that King is wrong because obviously one of the greatest horror writers of all time, probably the best. But I don't necessarily agree with how he categorizes horror in just three levels. I think it oversimplifies what horror is. Yeah. So I, I kind of break it down in my mind with a five level system and obviously five, that's way better than three. Uh, and these are not ranked in the same way where he kind of makes his as a pyramid or a ladder. I don't see it that way because I think most scenes actually jump between states. So you would have concern as one of the top levels and that'd be anticipation when the audience knows there's danger, uh, but maybe the characters are unaware so the audience is concerned for the character and the character doesn't realize bad things are going to possibly happen to them. Uh, then you'd have something like fear when the audience is concerned and the characters know that something's wrong. You're both on the same level. You don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. After that, you'd have actual horror. And that's when a character is in active danger. They're aware that they're fucked. They know the thing in front of them is what's trying to kill them. Then you'd have maybe revulsion, which would be graphic violence or gore. I think that's the same as the gross out. That still exists. Uh, but that's almost like the payoff. That's the punchline of a joke, you know? You have to go through all those other pieces until you get to the revulsion. It's almost a payoff in my mind, not just something that, you know, you do when you can't make anything else work. Uh, and then I, I would have a level I would call, like, disturbed, when the audience is unable to mentally shake the idea presented in the text. So it's like that lingering revulsion. Um, so, in a Saw movie, when you have a character stick a metal sickle into his eye, that's revulsion at the time. You don't want to see a guy pop his eyeball. But then having that lingering idea, that disturbing idea in your head after the movie, you know, maybe you're eating dinner later and you're munching on some grapes and you just think, oh, right, that guy's eye. Ugh. I think that's kind of uh, one of the things we don't talk about. And that's imagination that King would have maybe put in, but I, I think there's a lingering aspect that kind of ferments in people's brains. And he yeah. discounts that when he's going through his levels of horror. That's why I think it's very important to always remember that there are no hierarchies in storytelling. Like all the things that, that you just mentioned, they, uh, they're not stacked up on top of each other, which is like exactly. how our brains easily want them to be. Like they're all, it's more like a conspiracy murder board where all the photographs are connected with little pieces of yarn. They're all <laughs> interconnected to each other and they all give context to one another, one another and play off of one another. Well, I would say in a good horror film, you, you typically move between those states of horror. So maybe you start off with concern and then you go to fear and then you go to horror, revulsion, disturbing. Uh, so you could have like a movie where there's the POV of the killer. That'd be concern. Then it cuts to the character discovering their dead friends, which is fear. They know something's wrong, but they don't know what. And then the slasher enters the scene and attacks. That's your horror. The, uh, the protagonist hides, and we don't know what the killer is doing, so we slide back to fear. They're caught by the killer, stabbed by the killer. That moves into revulsion. Uh, and maybe they chop their hand off, and they have to spend the next two scenes wandering around with, like, three missing fingers. 
And you think about that later when you're at home, like, fuck, it'd be hard to open a bottle with two fingers. And that'd be like that disturbed element back. So I think a movie like Saw does the same thing. Like you have moments where Rig walks in and he knows there's a trap. My problem with something like Saw 4 and the later Saw entries as a whole, they don't milk those moments. Like there's a lot of meat left on the bone. Rig walks in, sees there's a trap, finds the record player or the cassette player. And then we move into essentially the payoff right away. And there's so much more you could do out of that. They're kind of almost doing it backwards because these characters have found out what the trap they're in and they're currently going through it. And now we have all these edits and close-ups and second unit shots of arteries and pain points. Yeah. And I feel like you could almost do that earlier. I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's a lot more they're they dioramas. could in this. Yeah. You're walking into dioramas. So that's that's one thing that's always bothered me at the Saw franchise. I think Saw 1 does it best because they have that one trap. Obviously, there's a little side flashbacks and all that kind of shit. But the main thing is, you know, one character is going to saw their foot off to survive. And you spend 90 minutes waiting for it to happen. So it builds up the fear, the concern, the horror and all that before it finally gets to the revulsion. And I think that's brilliant. It just takes so much time to get there to the climax. It really feels like the foreplay was worth it. And in these movies, they they try and skip the foreplay and get right to the fucking. Uh, I will say, I do think this is my probably... Uh, my favorite trap from this movie purely based on the fact that it's low tech it makes it makes logical and moral sense and it's a really gnarly imagery image like this seems like something that like that would be a deleted scene from one of the first two movies it works and the producers gave bowsman a hard time because of it my my problem (laughs) with it though is the idea right is the woman is abused by the man and she's supposed to learn the lesson of only you can save yourself. Which is a little bit of a weird approach to abuse. Well, it is, it is in the context of her uh, allowing, in Jigsaw's eyes, allowing the abuse to continue to her daughter as well. Yeah. But it feels a lot like typical victim shaming stuff. Like, Jigsaw, well, Jigsaw you is a bad guy. Ways. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the point. <laughs> also, yeah. I will say this is a situation where this exact trap in this exact context would probably work better in another Saw movie. Not one that's specifically about teaching a character not to save anyone. Right. Considering in, the other that, people... in that context, it puts it in slightly dicey t- territory compared to what, what, I, what I know that they intended with that. Right. Like, because if you look at the previous victims, like, well, this guy's a rapist. You shouldn't save him. And everyone in the audience goes, well, duh, that makes sense. This one is the more morally gray area where it's like, I don't know, maybe we should help people that are domestic abuse survivors. <laughs> and obviously, like Mike said, it's it's a bad guy doing this. So you can't accuse like, oh, portrayal is endorsement. But it comes off strange considering all the other clearly bad guys that he has <laughs> not been supposed to save up to this point. Again, that's kind of what happens when you're just kind of doing your movie piecemeal in a in a in a rush, and there's not a whole lot of time to sit down and see how everything connects together thematically. Yeah. I'd like to imagine Rig is wearing Heelys, and that's how he gets to town <laughs> across town so fast. That'd be so He's much just- fun. He's just skating across town, and that's how he's able to do it. So I want, 
I love how it's specifically the unwilling Saw henchmen that have command centers. <laughs> you think that's the same one Zep had? You think he bought a new one? Just repurposes it. I mean, that stuff's kind of expensive. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, there is a great alternate version of this somewhere where the movie does end with Rig agreeing with Jigsaw and becoming an apprentice. Yeah, we could. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. The apprentice thing feels like Amanda is the only one that sort of makes sense. (laughs) You're, You're always setting up Hoffman to kind of be the big bad wolf. So no matter what he does, you're never really supposed to be on his side. He's the ultimate villain that you hate more than any of the other apprentices. Yeah, he's... Oh, see, this is back to the classic script of, oh, geez, we just have people dying. Yeah. It feels so fucking... This still feels fucking hilarious to me and out of place. Oh, that this person just dies, yeah. and then he moves on like, well, we find Ray. Well, that happened. And a lot of weird cuts. Um, yeah. There were there was like three more of those in the original version of this, and I'm very glad that they were smart enough to cut it down to just that one very silly one. But yeah, Hoffman's actually, as much as I I don't like Hoffman, but I also understand why people like Hoffman. Well, because he's one of the most beautiful men alive. (laughs) There is like an overall interesting arc and story with Hoffman. I think my issues with it comes from it being so completely different than what I feel like is at the bones of Saw. Um, it, mm-hmm. it works a little better if you couple it with like Jill's overall arc throughout the entire rest of the films. But like as an island, it is kind of just like a serial killer movie, serial killer yeah. chase movie at, at a certain point. And it is interesting to see someone <laughs> of like Hoffman's sort of like how his own personal philosophy and but his also narcissism and his um, he's he's much more malevolent. Yeah. Um he, he's megalomania. He has like megalomania essentially um in comparison to John. So and seeing you can him like with John a little everything. bit just because John is a cancer survivor so if you're like eh, I don't agree with it but I get where he's coming from you, you can understand why that guy would want to take it out on the insurance industry or on doctors or on whoever else like this you got a raw deal. Hoffman is just a dirty cop. So, like, immediately you don't trust him? Which is one of those things, like, he could just be an all-out bad guy, which is what they essentially do by, like, part seven. He's just the big bad wolf. Yeah, he's just but got it, power and whatnot. Yeah, it just never quite works the same when it, it's supposed to... Saw, at least the original, was is supposed to tempt you a little bit with the philosophical or psychological edge that, hey, maybe this guy isn't all wrong. We can empathize with a bad person. Yeah. You don't really... I, I- I don't really ever see the point of view from Hoffman because I feel like he just idolizes John and then takes it to his own personal desires. Yeah, I think like if there was an like alternate view where this these movies were called like from the Book of Saw or something, mm-hmm. and instead of just being like Saw four, five, six, seven, mm-hmm. and it was like okay, what like this is taking place in the world. Here is a character who became a disciple of John, but he's gone haywire. And how dangerous sure. that can be. Like that's a, like that is an interesting idea, but it's so tied in with the machinations of the first three films that it actually it hurts Hoffman more than anything else. Yeah, 
If they did Saw 11 and just made it a prequel about how Hoffman got roped into things, that could work. I, I think they could actually kind of retcon the character into being way more interesting and viable to audience members at this point, which is insane to think after like, you know, 15 years, they could just go back and like, no, 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 we can fix this. We'll give them one more yeah. shot. Well, I think a big thing with Hoffman as far as what doesn't work about the character is look at how he's introduced to us. Like, <laughs> a brief cameo the last movie that might as well be nothing then he spends the majority of this one sitting down who yeah. is hoffman he's cop man it That's was why the reveal to, to reveal to read the original so script yeah it, 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 it that always threw me for a fucking loop i was just very confused the first time i watched this movie um i mean i was intrigued because i was still a fucking saw head and then saw five kind of lost me but um, I, I wanted to know more, but that's because I was a hardcore Saw nerd. Otherwise, you know, I was on the fucking forums for Christ's sake. So I couldn't imagine the kind of maybe blank expression of people who only like casually watch Saw. But, um, and not to discount anyone who does like love Hoffman and, and all that, but it was bizarre to read the original script and see how involved Hoffman is in the plot. And how fleshed yeah. out of a character he is, and how important he is, and then they for some reason replaced it with him just in a chair gag the entire time. It's I do yeah. not understand that. Yeah, yeah. Hoffman is treated in that script like he's like it's a superhero movie, and he's the sidekick who's being set up to be the villain in the sequel. Like they put that much attention to, to Hoffman. Yeah, because he poisons himself with the nerve agent, so he goes through and he's slowly kind of dying through the second half of the movie. But he sticks with Matthews, and they go together until the end where he's, like, too poisoned to go on any further. So he essentially ends up in the same place as this movie, where he, you know, reveals, like, ah, I was the bad guy all along. But it works much better. Although I still think it's kind of silly he poisons himself. He doesn't need to do that. No, but that was just sugar water. It, it, yeah. <laughs> no, he actually coughs up blood throughout, like, the second half of that script. <laughs> So he actually went the full way to poison himself, and he has to get in in time to get the antidote, Unrelated which cancer. is weird. It's like he's actually testing himself through, like, oh, no, <laughs> I have to go with this guy into the evil lair to get my cure. I have to make sure my spleen cherishes its life. Uh, I did really appreciate, too, in the original script when Matthews is kind of getting into the endgame, uh, he's put into a room where he has to get through a safe, and he has to do it in a certain amount of time, or I think... Uh, I'm, I'm a little foggy here because it's been a couple days since I read this. Uh, or Hoffman will die if I'm remembering right. Like he has to get the antidote for him. Uh, but his teeth have the combinations drilled into them, so he has to yank out his wisdom teeth one at a yeah. time within like two minutes. You know, to to because in Saw everything happens on a, a calendar. Like <laughs> it's very exact. If you're poisoned, very you have to make it. Yeah. yeah, like three minutes or you're gonna die. Uh. But that's such a simple trap that I'm like, how the fuck have they not done that? That's so perfect. It finally like, gives us that tr that teeth imagery they've been promising. Yeah, since three. But it, it's such a simple thing. Like, it's not hard to film because it's just a guy acting through the pain of having to yank out a fake tooth. You can do all sorts of saw editing tricks around that, the flashes and the swirls. But everyone can imagine the pain of having, like, a tooth pulled or dental injury. It's just it's like, how it's the fuck do you not use that? It's so perfect. It's so easy. Yeah. It's so direct. 
Like, it's a little reminiscent of the end of Saw 2, but it pushes beyond the gross-out of Xavier cutting open his neck. Like, how do you replace that with a guy walking through a door? Yeah. So I miss, I miss, that's one of those traps where I'm like, that's perfect. I can't believe they didn't really use it. Also, in the original script, instead of just a doll exploding, there's a car bomb. <laughs> there's a, the doll has a bomb in it, but it's in a car. So Strom is, has to protect Perez. The doll explodes. He has to like cover her somehow, get out of the car. It's a giant action movie scene <laughs> compared yeah, to the just die hard with a puppet. Yes, imagine die hard with a puppet. Make that somebody. Um, <laughs> the image of these producers reading a car crash scene. Any car scene in that script is fucking hilarious. I think we have access like, to a car. The actual version we got in the movie is great because it's the puppet that explodes and gets her. Uh, and there's like six candles in front of the puppet. Just like the cheapest looking uh, like Catholic candles possible in a dim room. Like they didn't even fucking try. It's the cheapest. <laughs> it's It's so sad compared to like the big extravaganza. That was written for us. Yeah, I think that was one of the shots that Bowsman said he had to redo like three fucking times because every time they get the dailies back, it was hilarious. Yeah, there is unfortunately a couple of shots still in the movie that make me laugh more than they make me gag or like be afraid or even are functional. Um, there's there's towards the end when Art dies, it just feels like they ran out of time. Like there there's a couple of insert shots that are so yeah. bad. And it, it's a bummer because I don't want to say like Bowsman's a bad director because one, he's probably second unit just stepping in. And two, I don't even want to accuse second unit of being shitty. I think it was just a matter of time and budget. They're like, fuck, we got to get this done. We have two minutes. Go throw the gun in frame. Done. These movies were not made under a professional time frame. We cannot say that no. enough. This The Saw franchise exists due to crunch. Yeah. It, yeah, 100%. I mean, if you have to have a movie written filmed post-production scouted all that shit within a year and released and promoted that's insane and the fact they kept that up for seven years is mind-boggling i know i've said it a hundred times before but i'm going to stick with that hats off they they did something impossible by making this many movies in that amount of time that still hold up as well as they do some of the later entries obviously don't hold together as well but you know, there's worse out there. So this trap interests me because it's another kind of simple one, right? He has to push his face through knives. Pretty simple, pretty direct. It's supposed to be the origin trap, like the one that really started John off. It's interesting if you listen to the commentary because they mention, the producers, uh, anyways, in their commentary mention that when this guy gets through the trap, John gives him a look. And their interpretation was, John is thinking how he can make the trap better next time. And I, I love that little bit of insight that the producers have about John, because it, it seems to say in their mind, John doesn't want anyone to survive a trap. And if they make it out, he's in the back of his head like, God damn it. Fuck, I should have made this harder. <laughs> this, guy was this guy was supposed to die in this trap. All people are supposed to die in the traps. So if they don't, something went wrong. <laughs> Which isn't necessarily a bad interpretation of Jigsaw. It's just like, no, it's oh. not a bad interpretation. It's not really the one that I think anyone creatively has presented, but it isn't exactly. a bad one. But it isn't bad, but it's not correct. 
I would say maybe deep down the way John designs these things and he's a stickler for the rules that he made. You can say psychologically deep down, he actually wants everyone to fail and he gets a little pissed off if they don't. Yeah. Especially like not to spoil Saw 10, but there's a couple of them where it's like, come on, the person did the thing. You just need to give them like five more seconds to do like a manual part of like, they already gutted themselves. What? They just didn't push a button fast enough. Come on. He still enjoys them dying. Yeah. There's a reason he had that peephole. <laughs> I think that's a part of John's psychology that maybe gets buried or lost a little bit as we go on through these movies. Especially because it, it ends up pitting John as the good jigsaw versus the apprentices who are the misguided or bad jigsaws. Yeah. So you tend to kind of forgive or whitewash some of John's actions as the movies go through. Which we yeah. shouldn't. Like, we should be thinking, like, no, John, John is still like a, a Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees kind of guy here. <laughs> God, speaking of forgotten jigsaw things, uh, I think that might be my single favorite thing in the original script. Is it closing on Strom looking at dozens and dozens of jars of formaldehyde containing the puzzle pieces Jigsaw was taking from <laughs> That thing that's, that they just stop mentioning after, like, episode, uh, movie two. I do... Uh, another thing I kind of love from the script was uh, there was supposed to be a hall of traps. Kind of like in, in the new Scream where there's a hall of... It reminded me of, yeah. Like they're they're walking through this building and you just see the entire history of Saw at this point. You know, the the bear reverse bear trap and all the other traps. You see prototype versions of them. And at this point we're throwing logic out the window, like of how John made so many of these things so fast and tested them and all that. But it's cool as hell. Like it's very yellow to me. So I was very down for that idea of him just having a memorial hall that victims could walk down. Also, though, that stupid factory at the end of the script has a part where Matthews goes one direction because he sees painted in a wall, <laughs> evil. Doesn't quite work, yeah. And Strom goes the other direction because he sees a mirror reflect the word evil to say live. <laughs> and, he, and he goes, you know, left where Matthews goes right. And so they end up in very different rooms. And I'm like... <laughs> Oh, imagine no. if it had said love instead, and Matthews was like, evil? No, no, evil. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing they cut that part because it was very silly to me. They end up doing the same thing anyways, right? Because Strom ends up going to a different room where we get the timeline cross, and Rig ends up yeah. going into the room with Matthews. So it's the same ends with just less steps, which is for the best. There's a lot of stuff that, Dunstan Melton did that were kind of like ideas like that that were just sort of like generic I don't know like spooky serial killer movie stuff yeah um honestly less so more than I said this, this I, lo I love this though I, I'm sorry I love this because Jigsaw going, oh, that'd make a good trap, is fucking, I love it so much. All right. You're making a I think this is what it. the producer's talking about. Yeah, like he sees the wire, he's like, well, that's a good idea. I should, <laughs> that makes it, way better than the steak knives. That are just wooden knives painted silver. I mean, they, they do kind of joke about that in the commentary, that it's very convenient that he just has a crib filled with razor wire for a guy to fall into. <laughs> we... It makes sense, though. We shouldn't have John himself be an action hero. 
even if the the early forms of the story involve action tropes, John's the idea guy. He's supposed to yeah, be yeah. almost like a philosopher, and it makes sense that he just kind of defeats the other dude by carefully stepping out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> I like that a lot more to... than him like having to muscle his way to victory. Yeah, you also have to preserve the fact that he hasn't by hand killed anyone. Yeah. Glass trap. This thing that does it does if I remember correctly, doesn't that exist just because Bowsman was bored? Just yeah, Bowsman was just like this movie isn't working. I'm gonna go walk off for an afternoon and come up with a trap, and we're gonna film it in a couple of days. I mean, these movies are all built around that, so it's a good way to go. Focus on the traps. He was filming a he was filming Repo the Genetic Opera. Yeah, he had other things to worry about. He, he was elsewhere, which worth it, worth it completely. Yeah, oh, give God, me my sequel, that- goddammit. We kind of talk about that at least a little bit because Bowsman and his complicated relationship with Lionsgate, like all that really comes to a head with the production and distribution of Repo, which we could fill an entire commentary talking about the troubled, troubled pre-production production post-production legacy of that movie that is seemingly cursed and, uh, the, the the um curse of bowsman we've brought up a couple of times in this commentary <laughs> exploded as they were making repo it's a little weird listening to the producer's commentary because they call it several times that darren bowsman was in production of another film they do. They do say like, "Hey, go see Repo." The Genetic one Opera. of the producers they, is a producer on Repo. Ah, uh, okay. I was gonna say because they call out like, "You should see this movie," but they also like kind of are snide about it. And I, without knowing these people, I can't tell if this is loving ribbing a guy that's not in the room, like just giving him some shit for working on two projects at once, or if they're genuinely kind of bitter that he wasn't giving it his all to one production at a time. I, I can't really tell. It could be a little bit. It could be a mix. I mean, they they brought Bowsman back eventually for more Saw, so it's not like they have the worst relationship in the world. Uh, one one thing I want to mention: a couple scenes back, we we finally had Strom blow up and start slamming the wall and screaming at Jill, trying to find out what the Gideon factory is. This is this has kind of been a part of the story since the beginning, but it's one of those pieces that I think was handled with more tact in the original telling, because Strom kind of comes to an understanding with Jill. Like, he's very harsh to her in the original script. Uh, For folks at home, I I forgot to mention, we're playing a drinking game. Every time I say original script, you have to drink. Uh, But they kind of come to an understanding, right? He gets mad at her, and then he kind of cools down, and they eventually start helping each other a little bit. And he has the brainstorm of, wait a minute, the factory, Gideon. And that's how he he figures out where all this is going down. He puts the clues together, uh, and he, he kind of has a moment where he's sympathetic to her, for having lost, you know, not only her husband, but her baby and going through all this. And it makes him seem like a much more rounded character who deep down isn't a bastard. We lose that in the final telling. Yeah. Here he's just kind of an asshole. Like he's just screaming at her because like, hey, the movie's almost done. We got to get places. Give me some information. All those it, quick cuts of him pointing a gun to his head. That mean nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It Puzzle. doesn't work as well as what they originally set up. The twist with that is the original script also has a part where there is a conspiracy within the police department 
and the actual police captain of this town is one of the Jigsaw apprentices. And he's kind of in it against Strom the whole time. We we do we don't find out much about this character. We just find out at the end. Yeah, I don't remember that. At the end, the captain? Well, he's kidnapped at the end. No, the captain isn't kidnapped. He's like in the car. He's one of the guys. No, no, yeah, but he's being kidnapped. Who is being kidnapped? Say <laughs> in your interpretation of this, is it Strom being kidnapped? That's not or the interpretation. Please? That go back and re read the scene. The the dude, the drill neck guy from the first movie who's like uh underling with a trap like kind of doing odd jobs throughout the script he's hiding in the back of sing's car and right. he rises up there and it, it's supposed to be that he's kidnapping him because the it. yeah the way i read it was he was just one of the guys like he was in on the whole thing there's a lot of cop dudes and saw it's easy to get confused what's going on I mean, that one's weird because they, like, give a lot of attention to that character we have never seen before. They're all of a sudden I like, hey, there's a there's this bulldog kind of police captain that they have to run stuff through. I spent the entire script thinking Singh was going to take Hoffman's place of being the surprise reveal jigsaw. It's nice that that script had more than, like, three characters. Also, before everything goes to shit here at the end, oh, by the way, I love the uh, spine machine from the end of the Hellraiser <laughs> remake. Uh, one thing Lionsgate did with Repo the Genetic Opera <laughs> that is even more ridiculous in retrospect now that I know what they did with uh, accidentally removing the score from the finale of Saw 3 that time. <laughs> was the first time it played for test audiences they advertise they i believe they uh told them only that it was a movie by the saw guys and then showed them a movie that had no music and just the click track oh no balsman was furious yeah. Told them to ne how could you do this a second time you're never doing this again they apologized profusely, and I believe the first time it was screened for critics, they aired that one again, and it was another... It, they aired oh it for God. critics with a click track and no musics, and that's the reason the movie oh has, like, God. a three on Rotten Tomatoes. Jesus Christ. That's... that's... wow. And, and that's after uh, a different studio stole their premise for a Jude Law movie, and after Crown Royal promised to to uh, pay for the movie and then pulled out while they were filming, so Bowsman had to pay for the movie himself. But Crown Royal still has product placement in there because it was too late to pull it. <laughs> I mean, the the general concept of repossessing organs isn't unique to even repo the genetic opera so i eh, i have a hard time giving them that but everything else sounds like fucking hell no that no that was act a full rip rip off of repo there, the there are opera. literally it came, from, it came from meetings yeah yeah there are also literally like shots establishing shots in repo men that are shots from the repo trailer also, oh no the ice deaths ever <laughs> so the ice blocks too was very, like, it was a technical challenge because they had actual giant ton blocks of ice, which meant they couldn't have an action underneath them in case they slipped or fell. So they had to kind of do some tricky compositing and puppet stuff, I think, to make that work. Like, it was just a huge pain in the ass. 
and it didn't seem like anyone was really in love with the idea of the ice trap, but they they all really stuck with it in the end. So why did, why did it have to be realized? That's what I want. <laughs> that it's also weird. Yeah, they could have just it's done some like fine acrylic. Anyways, yeah, I, there's I, the key that Bowsman was really into, and no, the producers didn't want to show much of. I think it should be mentioned that Bowsman was even originally supposed to direct this movie. Yeah, David Hackle was, um, but I think it was like the day he they uh, had him sign on. He found out like his uh, wife was diagnosed with cancer, so he had to back down from it. And Bowsman <laughs> came in pretty much as like a. Hey, I'll, I'll I'll handle it for you. Got Peter Jackson doing the Hobbit, the Hobbit at the absolute yeah. last minute. No, I, I always my my conspiracy theory there is that was always how that was going to go down, and that the studio wasn't going to let Guillermo del Toro do those movies. Like they just really wanted fucking Peter Jackson. They were just going to stomp their feet until it happened. Yeah. Um, so this 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 part, uh, I mentioned it before, it just bothers me so much because we have the squib back there, and then this tape recorder sliding into frame. <laughs> I hate. That it. meant I, he I, died just, as he was sliding it. Yeah, which is hilarious. Like well, I wish there was a more dunking on this entire ending during the commentary. Really, yeah. things. Writing a better ending. They pitched to producers, and then they would they wouldn't allow them to film it. Like a, a stuck-up fan part of me just imagines, like, what if they did that shot with both guys in frame when you see him shooting each other and him sliding the tape? Like, that could have been a really cool shot. I don't know why I'm imagining things that can never happen. It's too late, but <laughs> the back of my head, I, I see it better. Uh, and that's why wanna... you don't barge through doors. Sorry, that's that's the main lesson. Uh, one thing we shouldn't talk about too is with these movies, it's almost like a Marvel film. They have a director who's in charge of a lot of stuff and making decisions. But a lot of this comes to the producers. Uh, casting in these films, specifically this one, a lot of it was done by the producers. It wasn't like Bowsman got to pick the new characters. Um, he didn't have, say, over the script. You know, the producers really decided what they wanted to move forward with or traps or scenes. The money guys made a lot of the choices here, which is is a little bit... I shouldn't say modern day filmmaking because we we definitely had that mode in like the 30s too, where the director was there, but the producer could come in and tell him like, "Hey man, you're doing it this way." This is just one of those early examples of the producers being very public about, "Hey, we really run the ship, yeah. uh, and we use the producer as our guiding hand." We we see that more often now. There's a lot of big studios that kind of work this way. But it's easy to forget that Saw, with all its distinct features, really is being held together by a production crew, like a producer crew. Also a little weird, because it's not just one or two producers, there's like three of them that all have equal say in everything that's happening. It's a flight of producers, yeah, which I'm sure is a recipe for, you know, good filmmaking. It's got to be tough. Not all of them are going to agree on everything, so you, you probably end up with a lot of strange little conflicts, which we saw in this movie, you know. Two One guy jokes. doesn't agree with something. Another, yeah. Well, God, it's amazing to think the the big change of their original ending is just Rig doesn't go through the door. <laughs> and that was like that, and they also wanted Strom to shoot him. But both, like, both things were off the table equally, which fascinates me. It would have been a much more cohesive ending. Yeah. And accomplished everything all the same, so that's, you know, whatever. So we still have six minutes left of movie, and I want to get into this. 
Obviously, the big twist of this movie is that it's happening at the same time as three. The time distortion of the Saw movies is kind of become a commonplace factor for them. Like they all have that thing happening now where you can't trust that it's happening in linear fashion. A lot of times that's going to be the twist, which is fortunate for them because it works out in their favor for making something like Saw 10, which is essentially one giant flashback to Saw 2. It allows them to play with time much more freely in the movies, which gives them opportunities to bring back dead characters without having to go into the normal tropes of, He's supernatural or soap opera. It was his identical brother. So they kind of lucked out there. The The problem is it's a double-edged sword where now audience ex- audiences expect time to be fucked up in a Saw film. If your twist is, hey man, all these traps happened six months ago. Literally everyone who's seen a Saw movie before will go into theater going, yeah, man, that's I called that. It sucks because it's it's a good twist that they've gone back to too often, but it does allow them to do things like bring Jigsaw back in. It allows them to make a whole new prequel movie. It allows them to do so many things, but at the expense of the audience experience. Again, like we were talking about in previous commentaries, the first three Saw movies establish the three accepted Saw twists. I was waiting for Jamie to list the twist, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, when those are. Well, no, I was letting everybody have an end of the movie uh, flashback in their twist. Speaking of flashbacks here, the thing that always bothers me in Saw movies, because it happens in several of them, when they do the end of movie wrap up flashbacks, let you know what the clues were to the twist. And then they have to have, like, one last flashback that was five seconds before the flashback started. <laughs> we remember that. It was it was literally a minute ago. You don't have to show us what we just saw. It feels like you're watching Spaceballs and then are, like, rewinding the tape. Like, what's now? This is now. Uh, one day we'll have a Saw movie that's just one long flashback with Hello Zep looping for two hours. <laughs> I think they should do more where it's actually uh, they're cutting to the future instead of the past. Really throw people off, like, this guy's going to die later, but he'll be, like, 40 years after this movie's done. But you're going to think he dies now. Uh, we do the uh, final season of Lost Twist, and we're just flashing sideways to the afterlife every time we cut away. I mean, we kind of, that's what this one was, a flash sideways. Was this before or after, uh, this was definitely before uh, Lost got into that idea, right? But it yeah. wasn't to the afterlife. <laughs> God damn it. I want to see John Kramer meet God. That's how we bring up Michael Emerson. Uh, wait, oh, okay. um, yeah, Lost was 2004, six seasons, so that last season would have been, wow, 2010. Doesn't feel that recent. So, yeah, so, yeah this beat Lost the Punch by a couple years. They had yeah. that a whole slide sideways kind of deal down. Take that, Lost. Um, it, it, we, we did go this entire commentary without talking about the other credited writer and i don't know exactly how much of the weirdness maybe comes from from him i I don't know i mean he only has a story by credit but um yeah uh, thomas fenton that's it um but i just want to bring him up because doing research on him he has one acting credit he's mostly like a camera operator and he has a handful of writing credits uh, like including like, he worked I, his way up like a lot of grip work oddly enough <laughs> yeah mostly he was a grip on the double dragon movie um but he has like a writing credit on 
I Spit on Your Grave 2, the remake. Um, but he has one acting credit, which is Night Trap, and I love that so much. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. So I'm wondering, when you get a story by credit, does it like is that informal enough to be like he was in a pitch meeting and he just kind of spouted out like what he thought Saw 4 would be, and then they actually pitched it to writers? Or was he in a room somewhere actually helping them out? Sto- I mean, I, the from- ri- original script was just uh, Dunstan... And um, what's his name? So, <laughs> story by credit together in every movie, and Mike's like, I only remember I one of them. His name every time. It's it's Patrick Melton and Marcus no. Dunstan. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and I I do want to apologize on the off chance this ever gets to their ears because I call a lot of our, their uh, ideas stupid. <laughs> one, we need to acknowledge we're judging their first draft. Which, who knows yes, how, how yes. long they had to write it. They might have had, like, two fucking days to put that thing together. I like the script this. that was all them, too, to be fair, even though it was, there was only a There was a lot of good draft. stuff in there. There were, there were some very good ideas yeah, in there. Yeah, excellent bones for what could have been a really solid song yeah. for that we'll never see. I, I'm very much hammering parts that I didn't like because I don't know these guys. If I knew them in any capacity, I'd much, be much more gentler instead of being like, what a fucking idiots. We're big collector fans here. That's true, very much. Collection is fucking primo shit. Uh, and scary stories um but i think we need to acknowledge that yeah there were who knows the constraints on them and it was a first draft so it's not fair to say that their professional limits were on display like that was a thing that they just made quickly the first draft you always have to assume is going to be very rough and it will be fixed by the time you get to post or maybe in po- like not even then so yeah take with a grain of salt all those times i say that's stupid because i get to say that in retrospect after watching this movie and sitting on it for a couple of weeks um, but yeah, I, I am interested to, cause it's the only Saw movie he's credited on, interested about hey. that. Like, what, was he involved in just doing like producer note work on it to change it from the original script into the final film? Uh, but he, it's a story by credit. It's very, it's very was weird. He just, was he just in an office and suggested something and it was significant enough to, to earn a credit? Because I've seen that with basically like with actors just bullshitting things that end up making it into the movie that are big enough for them to retroactively get credited like that. I mean, all his wiki page says, and this is Wikipedia, so it's got to be the truest source of information. Uh, he worked with Twisted Pictures on a number of films best known for Saw 4. So he might have just been working there and giving out story notes, ghostwriting. Who knows? Uh, I, I feel like it's odd he's only in the one, though. Because yeah. all of these things has other writing productions. It's weird. Yeah, most of the Saw movies are like, oh, it's that guy again. For a sixth Saw film, like the composer's the same, the editing's the same, the art design's the same. It's the same dudes for like seven movies in a row. So it's very weird, excuse me, that he just pops up for one. Yeah. I would, I'd, I'd love like to, to more, know more about that. Yeah, Sam, I'd like to know the story behind that. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's a Joker's favor situation. <laughs> I really, uh, also, there's there's one extra paragraph on his wiki page that says in 2018 fenton wrote the scream writer's handbook not screen scream writer's handbook that is considered one of the better books on screenwriting and there's a link to the book and if you click it it says this page doesn't exist fair enough is that a social experiment i'm looking this up now to see if it's a real book it is in fact a real book i can buy a copy on amazon right now for 18 dollars. wait this is a different book This this takes me to the Horror Writer's Handbook, and that's from a different guy. It's from Darren Robinson. I don't think this is a real man at all. Uh, okay, Thomas Fenton. The Screenwriter's Handbook. It looks like there's some sort of horrible witch thing. I can buy a copy on 
thriftbooks.com for thirteen dollars and seventeen cents. Uh, but anyway, ten steps to writing a terrifying screenplay. And he's credited on the top, <laughs> Saw 4, I Spit on Your Grave 2, The Dominion, Slate Review, Chain Letters, and Max Payne. <laughs> oh boy, Max Payne. So there you go. You can actually find his book. It is real. For some reason, Amazon doesn't promote it when you type it in. Uh, <laughs> but it does exist. I'm putting my money on social experiment. I mean, I see a picture of it. Yeah, there's no like preview. I can't actually read any of the text that's supposedly in this book. I'm doing a terrible job getting Thomas Fenton to send me a free copy of his book by being like, I don't even think it's real. Let's wrap it up, Cody. Yeah, now yeah, the movie's done. Uh, I'm out of Malort. Oh, boy, what a film. Folks, if you have enjoyed this commentary, there's definitely more where this came from. It'd be weird if you started with four, but no, we do have a Saw 1, 2, 3 commentary already out there. If you go to boxofficepulp.com, you can look those up. And I promise you, I swear to God, we're going to have the rest of the Saw franchise slowly but surely chipped away. Probably through 10. I, I think that hits digital uh, this month, sometime in November 2023. So uh, sooner rather than later, we will get to that. But I assume probably in chronological order. But yeah, check us out. We're on boxofficepulp.com. We have a Twitter account for as long as Twitter still exists, at boxofficepulp. You can find us, well, I guess not Stitcher anymore, but uh, uh, Google Music, Spotify, all the usual stops. Check us out. Cha-ching. I, I'm sorry. I didn't know how to... <laughs> That was the end. That was the most professional exit I've ever done. That was good, yeah. It'll never happen again. Nope, never. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I've got something. Game over. And he shuffles away. (laughs) Oh, no, an ice block. God, his feet must have been so cold. Yeah, I think that's what you're supposed to be, like, freaking out on that trap. Like, an hour and a half of standing on an ice block would suck. Um... But I feel like the, the ice block finisher should have had some sort of symbolism. <laughs> like they, they should have had a line at some point where they mentioned like, oh, Detective Matthews with his heart of ice. Something clunky enough to justify ice blocks killing him. That one was all Hoffman. Yeah. I, I, I don't quite get it. Hoffman and he came up with ice blocks. You think he can walk away from that shitty trap? Mm. Oh, damn it, Hoffman. Uh, the tug of war trap was all Elway, though. Thank God, I was worried he was the one who came up with the lawnmower trap. (laughs) You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. This here show is brought to you by Zencaster. The all-in-one solution for podcasting that's easy is logging in and hitting record. With Zencaster, you get studio-quality sound up to 4K video right from your browser. No more worrying about unstable connections thanks to Zencaster's multi-layered backups that ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality. But that's not all. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound like a pro. It automatically removes those pesky ums and ahs and even those awkward pauses in conversation. If only it could remove those from my love life. But... Gone are the days of needing a bunch of different tools and services to create a podcast. Zencaster's complete platform lets you create, edit, and distribute your podcast all in one place, allowing you to easily publish to Spotify, Apple, and all other major destinations. So why wait? Start your podcasting journey with Zencaster today and experience the Zen of podcasting. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code BOXOFFICEPULP and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story.